everybody, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. Once again, I say this on every show, but I want to thank everybody that's been listening and spreading the word about the show. I just noticed that we passed 200,000 downloads, and it just feels really good to know that people are listening, people are spreading the word about the show, and most importantly, I get these messages from uh, listeners that tell me how much they've learned from the show or that it's changed them in this way or that way. Um, And uh, I really appreciate that because I get so much out of these conversations myself and I feel like I'm learning so much from all my guests and from the people that are chiming in and sending me messages and questions. So I appreciate all of you. And I also want to give a shout out to everyone that works on this show. Matt Dwyer, the engineer who edits and puts together the shows. Uh, Christina Collins, who helps with so many different things. RJB and the whole Osiris team. I want to thank everybody there. You can go to OsirisPod.com to hear the rest of their podcasts and the other content they create. I've been waiting ever since we started this show to do this particular episode. The guest on today's show is someone who I've looked up to for a very, very long time and gotten to work with him a lot over the years and watched him grow as a musician and as a person and become a dad. And beyond that, he also has gracefully taken on two of the most challenging gigs you could ever have. The Allman Brothers and The Grateful Dead both are institutions with massive followings, and it's a community when you get into uh, a fan base of a band like that. And it's uh, something that you can't take lightly, musically or in your approach. And he's done that with taste, musicality. He's never lost his own identity. He's always brought his own thing to that music, but also played it with utmost respect. And it's not easy to do that, you know, to balance your own style, but also stay true to this music that so many fans have come to know and love. He and his brother Kofi were both huge mentors for me and champions for my music and for Soul Live and for Lettuce and all the projects I was involved in. They welcomed us with open arms from the very, very beginning. And they influenced me and all the musicians around me so much in the fact that they were genius musicians and hugely accomplished in what they do, but also were just humble, great, loving people. So we get to peek into their childhood um, in this interview, which is really interesting to me, just seeing how their parents helped mold them as just loving, great people, but also helped nurture their creativity and musicality. We also get into what it was like uh, working with Colonel Bruce and what it was like taking on this massive role um, in Dead & Company and the Allman Brothers. It's a great conversation. I'm really excited to get into it. I wanted to mention that this episode and every episode of Plus One has a connected playlist in Spotify. So if you go to the actual episode in Spotify and you hit the details below it, you'll see a corresponding playlist. They contain songs we speak about in the interview and songs that influence the artist. So go check that out if you can at Spotify under Eric Krasner Plus One. We're going to get into this interview with Oteal right after a quick word from our sponsors. All 
All right, he's an amazing bass player, a singer, a composer, a banjo player, a drummer, the longest standing bassist in the Allman Brothers, and the current bassist in Dead and Company. An amazing dude and a good friend. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Oteil Burbridge. I've known you since the mid-90s, but I've been hearing you play since I was a kid. I've been listening to you play most of my life. Uh, I saw ARU open for Fish, I think it was 91, at the Capitol Theater. I was 15 or 14, and uh, it was like my first psychedelic experience, or one of, (laughs) and me and my friends... You know, and my dad would take me to the Capitol Theater. That was like the place where we could go see shows, or my dad would like take yeah. us there and pick us up. And he'd let us go in there, which is kind of crazy. We probably had an older brother or someone yeah. with us. But uh, <laughs> my dad, I saw a lot of music at the Capitol Theater, which is why it's such a trip to play there now. Wow, I bet. But, uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, I saw you guys uh, play, and I remember. Like zoning in on you and when you were doing like really? a scat solo and just being completely mesmerized by that moment, <laughs> wow. um, which is such a trip that we played to get we and then we started playing together and working together and have been friends for over 20 years. I know, um, it's, but it's wow. it's been interesting thinking back about all that stuff and like doing the podcast, listening to your podcast, <laughs> hearing Neil and Al on your on on comes a time. But I'm curious, going back even farther than that, um, you know, obviously Kofi was such a close friend of mine and and a mentor and a hero, and I just want to yeah. get a little bit of insight into what your household was like as a kid in terms of music. <laughs> Uh, cause I, <laughs> wow. I've been like, yeah. I've been like, I, I've, every time I'd hear stories about you guys talking about that stuff, I'm just like, everyone else shut up. Like, I want, <laughs> I want to hear this, you know, um, from the times traveling together and stuff. So I just want to like a little bit of a peek into like what that was like. How did your parents kind of like foster your, your like musical, uh, you know, education or, 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 or uh, curiosities even, you know? Mostly by having it themselves, right. you know. But well, first I gotta say, maybe I guess maybe all the people on your po- that listen to your podcast do know that you've named your son also after Kofi and like your granddad. I think you said, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I just gotta say, man, like I, it makes me almost cry like every time I think about it. Yeah. So yeah, I don't even know if thank you is the right thing to say to that but it's just like mind blowing it's one of those things like after he died i was then aware of how much influence he had and how many people he had touched on the scene right and it's just like whoa it really was a great help cuz i felt such an outpouring of love after he died i think it really helped me go through it right. that experience you know he was my biggest hero yeah in life, like more than Herbie, more than Jocko, more than yeah. because it started when I was four when they discovered he had perfect pitch, you know, right. when he was seven. And then we found out, oh, your brother's like got the superpower, you know. So wow. it's, you know, when you, when I found out you named your son Lewis Kofi, I was just like, wow. It just stopped time for me for it's, I just had to breathe, you know. So yeah. what an amazing moment in my life, you know, 
that I'll never forget. And I love seeing his pictures always and can't wait to hang with him. But, you know, when we were, when, when Kofi was seven, they discovered he had perfect pitch and it was because he was given an assignment in class, you know, like your seven-year-old music class, like learn the notes. Right. And Kofi thought the assignment was to learn the pitches. Right. <laughs> wow. So he memorized the pitches. It was a mistake, but it revealed this, you know, superpower. Crazy. So he goes back in, he's like, C, D, you know, like yeah. whatever. Or the teacher may have called the note and he just, I guess he sang it. And the teacher's like, trip. so he calls my dad and he's like, yo, do you know your son has perfect pitch? And my dad was like, I knew he was picking up stuff fast. But so then when he figured that out, he just like, I mean, he was already bombarding us with everything. Like, yeah, I understand. My dad was a flute player, but didn't feel like he was good enough to try it professionally. And his religion was music. He had one of the most amazing record collections right. of anybody that I ever met across genres. Yeah. But to him, like jazz was the height. Right, of course. You know, he had this huge record collection, was listening to music all the time. My mom would, like, you know, she was always like, you play music to your plants, you play music. So she would put headphones on her stomach when she was pregnant with us yeah. and play everything. So I was hearing all this stuff before I was born. Elvin, Trent, right. you know, like all the wow. stuff. Like, that makes and she's a lot of going sense. across genres. So before I even got out of her womb, I had this, I had been vibrated with all this great stuff, you know. And sound travels faster through water than it does through the air, which I had started thinking about after I learned with scuba diving and learning about all that stuff. I was like, wow. So th- in that fluid, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like infusing your whole body as it grows, you know. So that kind of influence, you can't beat that for, and then you come out of the womb and it's just ever present. There's always music playing in the house. And my dad showing us videos and he had old reel to reel tapes that he had made of bird like back in the day. Wow. You know, I mean, it was like crazy stuff, man. Crazy. And did your dad, did he play as well? He played, but you know, my brother could outplay him at nine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, or 10, he was already ahead of my dad. And my dad had already made the choice, like, I'm going to be a family man. That's what he really wanted was kids more than anything else in a family. And um, so that was the kind of environment we grew up. We were also in Southeast Washington. They wanted to keep us off the streets. Right. So they threw everything at us, all arts, all sports. You know, I did ballet for a while. Wow, really? I wanted to be a dancer. Yeah, I was taking my sisters to ballet. And I was on the wrestling team at the time in school. I was 14. And, you know, they're always trying to recruit boys. Boys, yeah. And I was like, yeah, uh uh-uh. I've told this story a bunch, but I I was like, nope, I'm dead. Where's the Coke machine? So they go downstairs. I go down the Coke machine. I'm a 14-year-old boy, right? Yeah. I go downstairs. Like, all the guys are gay. Yeah. So the girls are down there wearing, I mean, even when they were dressed, you could see everything because they're just in tights. You know, yeah. and they're like, and so I was like, sign know, me up. So I ran back upstairs. <laughs> and I had always been into dance. You know, I've been yeah, into African yeah, yeah. dance. We were into uh, Soul Train. 
we're into like skating, ice skating, roller rink. You know, we're back in the roller dancing day. So yeah. I was just like, we played classical music. I was like, this is just the dance that goes with classical. So, you know, I, and I was really, really into it. Like, that's what I wanted to do. But I had to stop because I got Oshkid Slatters, which is when okay. you're, uh, you have a growth spurt and your joints, your cartilage doesn't grow as fast as your bones. And it puts a lot of stress on all your joints, especially knees. So the doctor was like, over, no dance, no after school sports, nothing. Wow. Cut it if you want to walk if you want to be able to walk correctly when you're older. So I got so depressed, I picked up Kofi's bass, you know. But I had been playing drums since I was five. Right. And growing up with Kofi, even though I kind of knew he had a superpower, that's also all that I ever knew. So in another, on the other side of the coin, I felt like it was normal because that's what I saw every day, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so that was a big help to me, always trying to catch up to him, especially when I switched to bass and started learning harmony. So then I had to like try to catch up with him harmonically, not just rhythmically, you know. So right. he, um, that was always a dominant thing in the household, Kofi's talent and music. Like music was there. And then my dad discovered Kofi had this incredible musical gifts so they were they weren't gonna let me go off to music school early like they did him like 14 years old right when he left the state and um but he was such a prodigy i mean by the time he was 12 cats like ron Cardo and lloyd mcneil and uh what's the dude oh, i can't donald bird they would come through town and kofi would go and sit in with him wow <laughs> And he Crazy. was like 12, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was just ubiquitous in my house, this this music being as a religion. And and uh, I was a pretty good drummer, but uh, I shifted around. You know, I did uh, TV and movies, which actually Kofi got me into because he was doing a play at Arena Stage, uh, Raising in the Sun. And at that time... A lot of these people weren't well known, but you know, Ralph Carter, the young son from Good Times, he yeah. was the guy that Kofi was the understudy to. Oh. And Joe Morton was the lead. Debbie Allen was in it. Um, who else? Oh, man, there were some serious people in there. I'm forgetting the one lady's name, Helen. Uh, you would know these if I if I say their names. You Google their names, like you. Uh, everybody knows these people. And he then he got another play at Krieger Theater, which was attached to it, called Inherit the Wind. And they went to Russia, so wow. he split. He went to Russia at like twelve. I have the pictures, but maybe even earlier. Actually, I got the pictures. He's super young. He did Le Leningrad, Moscow, like all these places and he I remember the stuff that he sent us from Russia, like getting the stuff from Russia, the the ladies where you keep yeah, opening inside, the thing yeah, and there's yeah. a smaller one in. and um Love that. yeah it was and so they called him for a commercial and he wasn't available. So they said, well don't he have a younger brother? And, and my mom was like, yeah. So then I came in and read for that commercial and that led to me doing TV commercials, radio spots, which led to my TV show yeah, so you were co-host of a show, right? Called Stuff. Yeah, it was like a talk show for preteens, right? Going into their teens, like young teens, Crazy. and it was shown in Washington, Maryland, Virginia, 
they call it the metropolitan area. It was like a, you know how you kind of have the tri-state thing. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you know, and um, so we got an Emmy when I was crazy fourteen or fifteen. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it's a regional Emmy, so it wasn't yeah. like we weren't at the award. You know, yeah, it's yeah, like. Yeah. Our, our Emmys are not at the Emmys that are, sh- I right, mean, the right. Grammys, you know? But I just <laughs> like, want to see that show. I just want to see what that's all about. You know, I don't know if, I, I don't know. My mom, I think, just uh, tried to contact uh, NBC in Washington, D.C., WRC-TV it was, which okay. I'm sure that's still there and still under, probably still under that same call name. And, and uh, so she's trying to get it. I've never seen it. She sends me little clips because she has a VHS tapes you know right and i'm like oh my god mom please don't show anyone that. <laughs> i hated that and it's funny because um it was such a horrible experience because the director actually was a, a racist and wow. i didn't find out about this till afterwards but he made it a pretty miserable experience and that's when i decided i was like i don't want to do this you know and they thought oh i'm going to go to new york and either like get into soap operas or something you know yeah. like like your career is going like this in tv and i had done the movie already with yeah. peter sellers being there excuse me could you please tell me where i can find a garden to work in a garden we had all, you know that's like i was growing up it was like everything dance music visual art acting you know plays live stage like whatever just everything my parents were throwing at the wall to keep us off the streets you know right and my sisters are equally as talented like they're talented they my leilani played harp we all played violin piano we did suzuki method young yep, you know yeah and um my sisters just never did it for a career, but I'm still trying to get Adaro, the youngest sister, to, to sing with me. She's got a beautiful voice, man. Yeah. I heard a karaoke thing she did one time. I was like, come on, you won't record with me? Like, come on, get out of here. You know? right, right. So that was our house. It was just like, we were in Southeast Washington. They were trying to keep us off the streets. They were throwing everything at us. Everybody was good at just about everything. And it was fun. Yeah. There was never pressure like... Oh, I don't want to. I mean, I'm sure maybe it was some lessons. Maybe I didn't want, but I always just remember it being fun, right? You know, and they never forced the TV. Like if I didn't want to do it, they were like, "Mine," you know, right? right. It was a lot of money. Yeah, like growing up in Southeast Washington and making that kind of money doing like Kellogg's commercials and. You know, I did a thing with Tony the Tiger and right. Larry Brown, who's like the star running back of the Redskins in DC back then. Right. You know, was super. And uh, so that alone, we were like, man, you can't Crazy. turn down this. This is like easy money, like yeah. great money. You know, just like what? So, but as long as it was still fun, when it wasn't fun, my mom was like, you don't have to do it. Right. You know, so I think that was a genius move on their part. When did you really start focusing on the bass? I mean, I know all along you played drums. I know you played bass yeah. clarinet too, right? And some in wind, various yeah. different instruments. When like did you kind of go, all right, bass is where I want to go? Well, it was when I was forced to stop dancing. I got very depressed. Right. So I got really into dance, man. Yeah. Deep. Like I, 
I adore the art form, and I still go see ballet around Christmas time. Go see the Nutcracker. Yeah. yeah. And I got very depressed when I was forced to stop. And Kofi was away at school, so I didn't have my big brother. And his bass was sitting there. He bought the first bass because right. he liked Alfonso Johnson and yeah, Verdeen yeah. and, you know. Oh, yeah. And um, he had this old, it was a terrible copy of a Hoffner. I picked it up, and that was my therapy. And then finally, I was like, I don't know how to tune this thing. Like, I called Kofi, and he was like, E-A-D-G, and I had the piano there, and I learned to tune it. And then I started learning songs, and he starts teaching me harmony, like the basics, Yeah, you know? And so I picked it up at 14, but 15 is when I went in hard. Yeah. This is right after I started smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that coincides. I think there is something about like when you when you get high and then like everything goes away yeah. and you're just in this space and then it's just like it is a rabbit hole. It's a it's a doorway and you just you're later. See you later. Yeah. And I never came up out of it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? <And> <laughs> I know. Like, I, it's funny that so many of us have that same same story. It's really how it was for me. I think it's also like you find this place you know a lot of musicians are trying to find a place and like you said you were depressed from um not being able to dance not to be able to do and and it's it, it's it's soothing it's like this place that you can go you know and, super, and no one yeah, can really take it away from you you know it's like this zone you can just i don't want to say hide in but it you know so it's it's kind of this comfortable it's a refuge i mean it's not you know, it could, it's all depends on how you look at it. Like, you know, there's loneliness and on the other side, there's solitude. Yeah. Like some people do hide in it, but I feel like it's a place to go uh, heal, rejuvenate, charge, get inspired, and yeah. you can go to it. It's like that. Yeah. Like you pick up your instrument, boom, weed or not. Yeah. Like, you know, it's right there. It's like a, it's like a, a security, it's a safe place beautiful place to go yeah and uh and i love that i i really got deep when my parents my parents got divorced when i was pretty pretty young and just finding my because i was like here i was there and they were better off divorced it was never like a thing where i hated them for it or anything but inevitably you kind of get confused as to like where do you where are where do i live where do i belong you know and it was kind of like once once i'd get down to the basement and start playing it was like this world that was my own world. And I'd, I'd have my little record player and I could plug in and play with the records. And it, I would just go in this zone for hours or even days. And it'd for be sure. like, knock, knock, knock. Are, are you still down there? <laughs> hey, man, that's how I got away with not going to college. I'm right. the only person in my family to not go to college. Everybody wow. else graduated. And that was a big deal. But I spent so much time playing I went to my parents and I was like, look, because they started at 15, like, you know, you got to get up out of here at 18. Like, you either got to be in college or have a job, but you're going to be out of here. Yeah. So I was like, all right. So then it comes around and I'm like, I don't want to go to college, but I want you to let me stay home for a year and practice because I really want to like, I want to sew up every weak spot and I just want to hit it and I'll look for a gig. And if I find a gig before the year's up 
and they let me do it because they heard I was already been practicing so much. And then I just went into overdrive, you know, like the whole eight hour a day. And do you you remember what was your, were you listening to records? Was that your inspiration for practice or were you, uh, like what, what, were you learning scales? Were you, what, where were you, what was your inspiration for practice? Yeah. Kofi was all of it. I mean, you know, I was learning records, but it was like, Kofi would be like, learn this. But then I, you know, he could show it to me. Right. So there were some things like my dad, when I was 15, challenged me to learn Teen Town. He he said, I I bet you can't do it. Right. So, you know, back in the day when you had to lift the needle up and it... Oh, yeah. We didn't have good turntables, so it wouldn't go right back down at the exact same... It was excruciating trying to learn... So you couldn't slow it down. Yeah. You know, it was just like, but I learned it. You know what I mean? I, I got it. A lot of it, most of it was Kofi, and it was such a blessing because even just learning his songs like Jakarta, which is a tune in nine, right. and he wrote the stuff in high school and college that's super deep. Like Jimmy Herring recorded one of Kofi's tunes only when it's light on his record. And Kofi wrote that in 10th grade, you know, and um, and it's it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like, don't doubt it. That unison lick. Yeah. Know, well, like, the funny thing is, he'd always be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, man, it's real easy." And then he'd play it, and I'd be like, "That's easy." <laughs> you know what's crazy is I remember sometimes when I, you know, I played bass with Tedeschi Trucks for a short little while, yeah. which to me was kind of like this challenge of like, let me see if I can sit and stand next to Kofi, you know, yeah, and and hang, and uh, he would. The crazy thing is he would have this ability to like scan what was played and play it right back to me without even like, you know, like you could pick out any moment. There was I remember at one point there was a change where I was like doing like a half step before I think you had done it. And I was trying to basically cop what you were doing um, on a record or something. And I was doing it a little bit early and I was like, hey, man, was I, you know, that one part. I want to know when you're d- doing the that superimposed change. And he goes, yeah. he looks back at me like super chill and goes, "Well, what you just did was played exactly what I played. Exactly what I, I had just played. I couldn't have played it back. <laughs> he played exactly what I played and he goes, "What you want to do is And I was like, I just sat there with my with my mouth open like I have no idea. That brain has another compartment that's like recording. It was like recording what was going on. I mean, I remember in the early days, he he would be, I don't think he wanted or was suited to teach, especially early on, because he couldn't understand why other people didn't get it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, not everybody can get it. I know, I know. know? And he was so chill about it. 
and I've talked about this on the show a couple times, but he had this thing where he'd, he'd kind of like let out a little laugh when he'd play something like super killing. Yeah. It was like, it was almost as if he was the, not even that he would, sometimes he'd watch from over here what his body yes. was doing. Exactly. You know, and, it, and sometimes and he would trip like, himself. Out. I would hear like him just like let out a little laugh, and it was when the rest of us would go woo. You know what I mean? <laughs> he'd let out a little laugh when he played something just ridiculous. I think he was in that zone a lot. Yeah. Where, and you know, we've all experienced that when you're totally in the trance, in the flow, in the moment, in the zone, and then it's like your hands are off. Yeah, like you're just yeah. right to the side of you watching. Those are the those are the moments. That's like the the moments we strive for. You know, all the practice and all of the training is to get there where you don't have to think at all, right? Or even play. Right. I mean, like, you know, it's it's like what uh Colonel Bruce was talking about. He got it from Krishna Murray, but attention without reactive thought. It's like it's like the Dow talks of it, it's almost like being and not doing, just Ooh, being. Yeah. yeah. Like a fish doesn't swim. A fish exists in the water. We swim. Right. They just, they're being, they're not doing, you know what I mean? So we, and I remember uh, when Derek Trucks was, he's, you know, how into deep into the Indian classical thing, and he was reading something and he talked about at a certain point in your development and in the the actual moment of playing when they say your guru takes over. Now you're not doing it anymore. Your guru is wow. like assumed control. And that's it's such a great Crazy. description of what's happened. We just don't frame it that way. Mm. But I was like, I know exactly what that is. Because I could get there so much quicker with Kofi. Right. Like when we play together, we just like, and we would mess up at the same time. Yeah. Like it was, it's really cool and mystical. Whatever you play the exact same thing at the same time, you're like, ah, yeah, you know, because it happens all the time with them. But then when you both go off the tracks and just into a ditch at the exact time, that's being joined together. That's as mystical as anything else. We're both in the ditch, like, ah, yeah. it was trippy, wasn't it? You know. And uh, so yeah, my whole upbringing with that it was my. My music school and college and all that was Kofi. I'm super blessed that he was able to explain harmony the way he did to me, the way he did with me. And um, and he was so nice about it, too. You know, it kind of kept me from going to New York and just being beat up by the old guys. I was like, I don't want to. So I just spent all my life trying to, like, keep up with him. I never did catch him. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just learning some stuff now. Uh about this, you know, this extra note in the scale that jazz players use that I didn't know about, the sixth diminished scale from right. Barry Harris that's completely got my brain just like, right. So now I'm at the piano all the time, like really now digging in, not just on bass, but on piano, trying to figure out these voicings and this harmony. Barry Harris, man, that's a deep cat. It just makes a regular major scale or minor scale sound like Duke, Bud right. Powell, like all the greats. Yeah. Like I just, I just videotape myself playing the scale and it's like, I sound like the shit. Yeah. You know? I'm yeah. like, wow. But there's this extra note that I didn't know about, you know? Yeah. And so now I'm, you know, it's my first time like venturing into something new 
beyond what I know without Kofi. So it's a uh, really deep time. It's a gift from the pandemic. And from my friends, I learned it from Tom Guarna's guitar player. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, I so wish Kofi was alive right now. Cause yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny. He showed me a lot of this stuff way back, way when I was, when we were still in the music room. So I couldn't have been more than 17. I think I was yeah. 15, 16, 17. And it was just, I, I couldn't understand it back then, you know. Um, but um, yeah, what a great house to grow up in. You know, it was a humble, you know, beginning. But it was, a, we had everything we needed, man. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Fast forward a little bit to to meeting Colonel Bruce and, and like how did that happen? Um, that was great. I have more conversations about that now. Yeah, uh, that, I guess because so much crazy stuff is going on that he totally predicted yeah. when I was like twenty four. Yeah, like predicted all of this, man. Like all of it, not specifically the pandemic. He called it the return of the cosmic whip, the invisible whip. Yeah which I think is one of the name of Jimmy's bands. Oh, right, right, right. Which he said, I was like, man, I missed everything, dude. You had every great musician. You had the political consciousness raising. You had like every, all I got was Ronald Reagan. It sucks. <laughs> and he was like, O'Teal, when the next one happens, it's going to make that first one look like nothing. I was like, all right. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't see ahead to like, being 56 years old or whatever, you know, now we could see, you know, it's like, Oh wow. Climate crisis, you know, George Floyd worldwide protests, right? right. Like, you know, pandemic, like full on, you know, just everything. Yeah. So when I first met him, I was super frustrated, starving, very like, wow, I put all my eggs in the music basket and it was not working out financially for sure. And I was very, and I was not happy playing music. And the, the stuff we wanted to do at that point, which was just instrumental fusion, like nobody gave two shits about, like, you know, nobody wanted to hear it. So if you yeah. wanted to play that, you could play in your garage until right. the cows come home. It was going to be no gigs, yeah. and no money, <laughs> yeah. you know, and no support, no fans, right? So whatever musicians would show up, you know, and I'm just like, wow, I don't even know what to do now. Like, I've, I'm dead in the water, and uh, very disillusioned. And Jeff Sipe was like, you know, you should meet this guy, the colonel. Like, all the best cats in town go play with him to get their yayas out you know yeah. i was like well you know whatever i'm just like you know and i meet him and he's just like he does not look like a musician right, right? and he could have been like a homeless guy right you know with all the mustard and you know he always had something the one <laughs> the shirt was buttoned wrong or you know it just yeah. it's a perfect 
disaster, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but then he guessed my birthday within three minutes of when I was born. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. Now I've had mystical stuff happen to me my whole life. I don't poo poo it. Yeah. Thankfully I would have, if it was only up to my dad, but fortunately I have my mom and she's had crazy shit happen to her, her whole life. And she knows it's real. So she always taught us like, Hey, you need to pay attention to this stuff. You know, like don't let anybody talk you out of realizing that it's actually real and, and, and important. And she's how I even knew my time of birth because she was really into astrology. And uh, I was born at 1.57 a.m. I'm pretty sure he didn't know my last name. And we hadn't known each other that long. We'd probably been talking 30 minutes or something. We go out to his car to get one of his records called Arkansas. He opens the trunk, and this car is like, like Nigel calls it a disaster piece. Yeah. Um, the smell of that car, I'll never forget it. <laughs> but he just turns to me, he goes, August 24th at, at 2 in the morning. And I was like, whoa, whoa, okay, whoa. I was like, hey, that's right. But how did you get two in the morning how did you yeah. i was born how'd you he goes oh your nose was screaming it <laughs> I was like, screaming what, the, what does that mean wow. you know and he said well your nose where chin squared off and blah 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 it's cancer rising as two in the morning i was like all right Crazy. <laughs> and i was like i'm gonna be hanging with you until yeah i always wondered what he was seeing because he guessed my birthday right right first try um, yeah. and I, I've always wondered like, what is going through his mind in those moments? Like, what is he seeing? It's a combination you know? of things. Like there was, uh, some science to it. Like yeah. he, um, but there was definitely an intuitive part. Like he taught, I got pretty good at doing it. Like I could guess if they were earth, air, fire, water, and then you'd narrow it down. And that I just got from a feeling. There are some things like if people have a raspy voice, they're probably a fire sign. You know, the lion's roar. It's that right. fire, uh, you know? And if it's not sun, and maybe it's rising, maybe it's moon. But usually, you know, uh, Leo people tend to have a big mane of hair, you know? He said Aries men had a gap in their teeth like David Letterman. Um, uh-huh. So he had certain, there were physical things that he would look for, but some of it was intuitive and then some of it was physical. And then, but he, but you know, he also was an extraterrestrial. There's no doubt about it. I mean, when you meet people that have two birth certificates and they're not from a foreign country, yeah, that's one of the tip-offs that you know they were planted here and they <laughs> got two different things going on. <laughs> I remember one time I called him an alien. He said, "I'm not an alien. I'm an extraterrestrial." I was like, "Okay," you know. So he he wasn't mad, but he was like, no, that's not what I am. He's, I'm a terrestrial with some extra, with a lot extra, <laughs> you know? And uh, so, it, yeah, as soon as that happened, I was like, all right, you know? And then I played his album at home, and two things happened. There's this one section of fiddle on it, and somebody's talking in the background, I think with a really deep Southern accent, and then they just play this like bluegrass fiddle thing, man. And all my hair stood up and I felt like I was in another dimension. I was like, 
and then that tune Thrandossel and the tune Basically Frightened. Oh, okay. And basically when I heard was basically, on that. Yeah, and I said, I went to, you know, I was so scared and just confused 24-year-old out on my own, just, you know, starving, you know. And I said, man, I feel like I'm crazy, but I don't think it's me because I think the world is crazy. And he goes, you're damn right the world's crazy. He goes, you better go crazy on your own terms or this world will drive you crazy on its terms. And I was like, wow. And it just completely freed me because that song basically frightened us. Like, you know, I'm basically frightened of Jesse Helms and, a, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, he's it's comedy, but he's, yeah. he's talking about real stuff. And so I related to it, and then with all the cosmic stuff, and then he would like point out aliens and stuff. That was the craziest thing to me. He always said if you go to airports or Las Vegas, because there's more people and they can blend in easier. And he'd be like this, you know, and you'd look and be like, oh, I was at UPS store the other day, and I wanted to take a picture of this dude. Yeah. Because I was like, whoa. <laughs> And, and always, everybody's like, sure, how can I help you? And like, nobody sees it. I'm like, yeah. really? You can't? Yeah. And I didn't want to take a picture of him because, you know, you're being videoed in the UPS. Or that's kind of a yeah. weird thing. That's, you know, I just, well, I was like, man, I wish somebody was here right now. Yeah. Because that's what I've been telling people. And uh, it, so that was always really cool. And then, you know, his whole thing with the gambling and the horses he took me to the track one time and he would bet these long shots and because he knew the horses sign he yeah. knew like you know so he goes oto the horse is supposed to win he's gonna cream everybody and then three quarters of the way through he's gonna die and my horse is gonna come up because the moon's in whatever the hell and yeah. something's conjuncted with this. You know? I'm like, wow. all right. So the horse is just killing, right? And I'm like, he's fixing to lose this money, man. And then all of a sudden, he goes, here it comes, Oto. I'm like, all right, man. Wow. So I'm looking. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the thing just dies. <laughs> it just comes in. And I turned insane. to go, my dude, you're, and he already got up and is headed to go get his money. He was already on his way. Oh, my God. I was just like, why would I ever doubt, man? I'd be at a yeah. bar. Like, I remember I was playing this bar, and someone asked me to play drums, and it was at a black club, and Colonel Bruce came to see me, so he stuck out like a sore thumb at this place, yeah. and he wouldn't drink. He never drank or yeah. did drugs. Yeah. You hear the Hampton Grease Man, it's hard to believe that. Yeah. But it's true. And 
he uh so he's just sitting there looking like a homeless white dude at this black bar where everybody's like you know dressed nice and oh yeah <laughs> so on the break i come there and I, and the guys are lined up in the bar i said i bet bruce could guess all of your birthdays <laughs> he just goes down like bam 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 wow <laughs> I just, and then uh i'll never forget because i had a heineken and he took one sip of it to freak me out yeah and i think he felt it and then he just left he split because wow. i think like one sip of beer like actually made him high like threw him off it was, crazy. It was i'll never forget that night man so many crazy nights like that and then he would do stuff like tell me like you know you're only giving me 20% of what you really are. And I was wow. like, what? I'm up here playing my heart out. Like, he's like, you're just playing what you practiced, you know? And I was like, he goes, I want to hear your life, man. I want to hear what happened today. What happened today? Why are you going to play the same solo if your mom died or if you inherited a million dollars? Cause you're just playing what you practice. Right. And so he's like calling you out and you know, he's right. Right. Yeah. And you're like, Wow. And so then he would demonstrate it not being able to play, like have chops. Yeah. He wouldn't even need an instrument. He would always say, you're playing. If you don't know what you're going to do, then there's a threat. And all playing has to have the threat of we don't know what's going to happen. Which I was like, well, I should be able to do that. That's jazz. That's improvisation. Like if you're not doing that, you're not doing it. So I was like, I thought I was doing that. He was like, He's like, I don't even need a guitar to create the threat. I was like, all right. So he just, and then he would properly demonstrate it for you with a full audience. So he just takes his shoes off and he holds his shoe. That's all he does. He stands there and holds his shoe. Now I watched the audience go crazy, even us to a certain extent, although we knew to expect the unexpected with him. But Finally, he's holding it for so long, and people are like, what's going on? Do you know what's going on? Maybe nothing's... Am I missing? Is this an inside joke? Like, what's... And then finally, like, people, you can visibly see, like, what is he doing? And then he drops the shoe, and everybody's like, ah! You know, and walks off. He's like, see? <laughs> just like, wow. He <laughs> just proved it. I was like, okay. Uh, I don't know exactly how to do this. And uh, But it was just a matter of, he said, what you are is so much bigger than what you think you are, and you're putting yourself in this box, and what you practice is this little box. And what you actually are, you have to destroy that box to get outside of it, to right. find out, right? So it was just a matter of me giving him permission. I, I was like, I don't know how to do that. And I mean, he didn't tell me literally, but he was like, I'll do it for you. And I was like, do it. Right. I gave him permission. Just let's bulldoze it. Blow it up with dynamite, whatever. Because at that point, I was just like, you know, now I found a, a lost scroll or a gem or something. You know, I went from being completely disillusioned and uh, pessimistic and all to being wide-eyed and experiencing wonder and every new moment is like... So, and it, what, what an amazing time, man. What an amazing time. What a great cat to meet. Somebody that seemingly can't play to teach me like the most important things. Right. Some of the right. most important things, you know. 
And uh, he just, man, I, I think about him every day. Things happen, you know, even with my kids. And it brings them, brings them to mind. I talk yeah. about him more now than uh, maybe it's because of the pandemic. I don't know. But a lot of people ask me about him too, you know. Yeah, I think I've said this to, to people before that no one is more alive after being alive than Colonel, Bu- Colonel Bruce. Because we quote him all the time. We always yeah. talk about him. And yeah. he and he did so much. Think of how many people were touched by him, you know, and were yeah. kind of gone, went through, you know, Hampton University or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, you and Jimmy and Derek and Dwayne. Um, yeah. And he, he even lent himself to, to my crew, you know, and. And he knew all kinds of like he introduced me to a lot of my heroes. I was like, yeah. you don't know Ralph Towner, yeah. You don't know John Abercrombie or Treelock Gertu, and you know, I was like, all right, you know, I didn't say that to yeah. him, but I was like, all right, man, you know. And I'll never forget, I, you know, John Abercrombie looks a lot like the Colonel, right? And I ran, I turned the corner at a Nam show, and there's John Abercrombie, and I thought it was the Colonel for a second, and I was like, oh. Wow, that's John F., my hero, yeah. you know? And so I was like, oh my God, you do look like Colonel Bruce. And he goes, oh, don't say that, man. Oh my God. And I was like, wow, he does know him, you know? And he introduced me to, man, when we met Towner, we were playing the Bayou in Washington, D.C., and Towner was playing around the corner at Blues Alley, solo concert. 12-string guitar, I think maybe six-string guitar, piano, and he might have even done some trumpet. So we're all there, and we're like, and we're on the guest list. And I'm like, I'm seeing my hero. Kofi turned me on to that group Oregon and Ralph Towner when I was like 14 or 15. Right. And I just, it's such a huge part of my spiritual uh, life. (laughs) And so to meet him and see the solo concert, and we were all fighting back tears, a fight that I'm sure I lost. Yeah. And I think a couple other guys in the band lost that fight, too. It's just that inspirational. He's like, man, I can't wait to come see you guys. And we begged him. We were like, please don't. <laughs> we're just, you know, doing our crazy, you know, cheese frog, cheese frog. Yeah. But he got all of that stuff. Right. He got, he totally got Colonel Bruce. And, you know, for fans that may not know who he is, this is a guy that was trained by a classical uh, master from Vienna, but that liked jazz. And so would do all this other stuff, you know, and created, really, I feel like he created New Age music. I feel like that group Oregon was really the first. And then everything after that was kind of like a really watered down version of that. But if you ever get a chance to hear this group called Oregon, which is spelled just like the state, it's Paul McCandless who played with the Flectones for a while yep. on oboe, Ralph Towner on guitar, uh, Glenn Moore on bass, and Colin Walcott on tablas.
what an amazing, what amazing writing and stuff. So to meet these guys and so many people that knew him, which you find out in that documentary, like Basically Frightened, all those stories that he told me, you know, you wonder how much of it is true. And it's like all the kind of believable stuff is total lies, right. which he did for fun. Right. Just to like, see if I could just completely lie and people will just take it as the truth. But the most far out stuff that you're sure is lies, it's all true. And when I watched that documentary, it just blew my mind to hear the actual people tell those stories. Like that right. dude that lost his job at Columbia Records yeah. signing the Hampton Grease Band. The Grease Band got signed for 300 grand. It was a double album. Skinner was signed for $9,000 at that same time. Wow. So you're talking, this guy went out on a limb. He saw it. He was like, this is like Zappa of yeah. the South. This is the greatest thing that's. And he was right, and he lost his job over it. And wow, he gets choked that. up and starts to cry Wow! on the video. And I was like, to hear him tell this story verbatim, like I was just like, Greg Allman told a story like that where he was very, he was scared of Bruce till the day he died. And he was right. Yeah, Bruce is an extraterrestrial, and he knew it. it he was like, I said, man, Bruce was going to sit in with us. And I caught Greg looking around the corner to see if he was cut because he was he was like, that dude scares me, man. I was like, I promise you he's harmless. I know he's yeah. scary. It freaks me out, but it doesn't scare me, you know? And I was like, what scared you about him? And then he told this long story about I think it happened at Atlanta Pop Festival. Yeah. And it was something that Colonel Bruce had told me. And I was like, okay. But he had a part of a white picket fence and he chainsawed it. And there was someone sitting on the side of the stage with a like a nightstand and a lamp like reading a newspaper like they were just in their living room and they didn't do anything but that it was just like out, weird out shit and Greg perfectly described it like wow. <laughs> blow by blow the way Colonel Bruce <laughs> it freaked him out dude. Oh. but Dwayne loved it and Dickie yeah. loved it they were their biggest fan and Dwayne is the one that got him signed to right. Capricorn Records and Phil sold it to Clive Davis at Columbia and and Clive stopped the pressing the second that he heard it. He said that is not going to come out on my label. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. So there's that whole attack there's that whole connection too with the Almond Brothers. Right. You know Bruce was hanging out with Pigpen back then and with Dwayne. Right. And you know, his first bass player, like all most almost every bass player he had up until that point when I knew him were all Virgos. And Mike Holbrook, his first bass player, the one with the grease band, him and I have the exact same birthday, August 24th. And he would take us out for our birthday to this Lebanese place. So it was great. And um, so, yeah, it was like he had that connection with the Almond Brothers and the dead. I remember we had Steve Parrish on our podcast. And he starts reminiscing about Colonel Bruce, and I'm thinking it's more recent. And then I realize, oh, he's talking about the late 60s. Like, he has vivid memories of the Colonel from 69, 70s, you know? And I was like, wow, he just, but duh, he makes that kind of impression on people, you know? was Bruce involved in your connection to the Allman Brothers eventually? Or what? How how did that how did that evolution happen from ARU to? In a way, yes, because I always say this, you know, like I was just a fusion guy. 
my blind spots were Delta Blues and then a lot of the electric blues that came right after it. Like my dad had BB right. King records records and stuff, but he wasn't into the blues like he was jazz. Right, right. You know. So with Bruce, I learned about bluegrass. I learned about Delta Blues. I learned about the electric blues from like Texas, Chicago, you know. Um, and those pieces I needed to be ready for the Allman Brothers and for the dead and for dead and company because you need that folk music thing. And it again, goes back to what he was talking about. He was like, if you play your life, you don't need a lot of chops. So, you know, you don't have to know what a half diminished chord is if you're playing your life. Now you can have a lot of chops and you could be Art Tatum or Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie and still playing folk music. You're still hearing your life. You know, when you've, listen to a bunch of other music and then you listen to bebop, you hear the hustle and bubble, bustle of New York. You, you know, you could just hear it. And um, so it has that folk element that's right here. And he's like, you got to have that also. And if you have chops, great. If you don't, whatever, you know? Yeah. And so I, I needed those pieces. And then that, you know, I still even wasn't ready. I don't think I've really... Um, but I guess, you know, the universe decided I was ready because I got the gig when I got the gig. You know? And how did you actually get the gig? What it, what was the It was from Butch there? Trucks. Butch was yeah. doing this um, side project when the Almond Brothers were off. They would do the Beacon in March, yep. and then they would tour June through September, and the rest of the year they would take off. Yep. So you had these big chunks where they weren't working, and, and Butch just wanted to keep playing. So he would do this side project, and he eventually got... Uh, Jimmy Herring and Derek Trucks in on it. Yeah. And um, Frog Wings, right? Well, it wasn't called that at first. Oh, okay. They would do, there was some girl singer, I can't remember who it was. Eventually, it became from, you know, they were like, man, you should check out this bass player, O'Teal. And then while we were talking about that, Warren and Alan Woody quit the band. They were at the Beacon. They quit the Allman Brothers. Right. So then I started getting called, like, frantic calls from Butch. Which you know, Butch is oh, yeah. really, really important that you yeah. call me. You know, and this is before cell phones and all this stuff. Or I didn't have one at the time, yeah. I don't think. And um, so, and then Bert Holman called me the manager, yeah. and I was like, I told my ex-wife, I was like, I don't think this is about the side project. So, you know, I'm gonna call back see what's up. And then it was just like, hey, uh, Warren and Alan quit, and we heard your the man and you know what would you think about playing with the almond brothers band i was like i'm in bro i didn't have none of their records nothing yeah. but i was like i smell a big break coming you yeah. know yeah <laughs> and uh so you know we went through this process where i had the gig i had the gig i had the gig and then dicky decided he wanted to fly me and jack pearson who also had the gig jack brought uh, Jack was brought in by Dickie and I think Jack had also played with Greg yep. so he was in he didn't have to audition and at first I didn't have to audition but when I went down to Dickie's I hadn't really done my homework and but uh, the tunes were easy so I thought I'll just learn them when I get there and then we'll do it you know I played through them but I hadn't like learned all the and, and yep. looking back Dickie really wanted to make sure I could play the long jams because there's really two bands there's Greg's 
thing, which is like, he likes it short and sweet. He hated long jams up till the day he died. And then Dickie's thing, which is, which was Dwayne's thing, which is, I want to do long jams like Miles and Coltrane, you know, and the dead. Yeah. You know, they were big fans of the Grateful Dead. Big. And, And, um, so, um, yeah, if it's, I got down there and and Dickie was like, okay, let's do Liz Reed. You know that one? And I was like, well, I kind of know it, but you know, show, let me make sure I got all the parts and then we play it. And he's like, well, that was good. And he's like, all right, let's do Jessica. You know that one? I was like, well, I kind of know it, but let's go through. And we do another one. And finally, he was like, how do you not know? You're from the South. You're from Birmingham, Alabama. How do you not know Almond Brothers stuff? I was like, oh, well, I'm not from Birmingham. I'm from Washington, D.C. And my parents are big jazz heads. Like I actually didn't have any of you guys' records, which I should have right. said. Right. You know? <laughs> so then he's like, "Well, I think we should have auditions because you know there's probably somebody that's been following us their entire life. Yeah, that knows every that knows in and out. Yeah, what we are because he was correct. Like I don't care how good you are. Like yeah. if you don't know what we are, then it's more important to me that you know what we are than you know than you're a hot shit bass player or whatever, you know? Right. But then they told me I knew what we were going to be doing. And so I just drilled down on it and and I still got it, you know? And were they, were they, uh, when you showed up, I'm just curious, particulars, did you have a, a six string bass or did you bring like oh, a four Oh, yeah. String? Okay. Oh, yeah. And what even with the four you know, they really weren't judgmental about it, but yeah. you got to remember, Alan Woody also had an 18-string bass, which they didn't <laughs> like, and he only used it on his bass solo. Right. But it wasn't 18, but right. they weren't, it's not, it wasn't new to them, like, and I still used, I eventually switched to four-string on my own. It was right. actually on, like, I knew I had the parts right. I'll always be indebted to Joe Dan Petty, rest his soul. Um, he was the original guitar player, I mean, guitar tech from the very beginning of the band until the day he died when I was in it, which was probably 30 years later, 31, something like that. And um, I said, Joe Dan, something just doesn't, I don't know what's, it just doesn't feel right. I'm playing the right notes, but it's, and, and Joe Dan's a bass player. He also had a band called Grinder Switch, which had records on Capricorn, I think. So he knew all the bass parts. He knew all of, he knew all of Oakley's fingerings, and he was a godsend because he he had he was such a big fan because he's a he's like I have I would never try to tell you how to play bass, but if I could just make a suggestion, and I was like okay, and he goes and gets his Fender Jazz, you know, it's like a Mexican jazz is like two hundred dollars. He he's like, would you be willing to try this? I was like sure, and so got the jazz, and he's like. One more thing, would you would you be willing to try this pick? And I was like, sure. So yeah. I'm being open. I didn't even own a four string at yeah. that point, right? So I tried it, and I was like, oh man, this is it. You know, like stand back, don't keep me wondering. I'm like, yeah, this is it. Thank you, Joe Dan. You know, yeah. wow. So I'll never forget. We're doing this tune. Uh, Leave my blues at home. Yep. I got the four string. I got the pick, and I'm like, it's still not right. So I know, go straight to Joe Dan. I was like, yo, man, what am I doing? What's what's not right? Something's not right. And he's like, I never, I don't want to tell you how to play, but can I show you something? And I was like, 
please. So he takes the bass and he goes, this is how Oakley used to finger it. Now, Oakley was a guitar player. So I don't, I never do the, I do open string fingerings as little as I can because the pattern's different. As soon as you get off that open string, the patterns repeat everywhere on the neck. But guitar players play a lot down in those open strings. And so the way it's a B minor line, but it's really in D, which is why Greg was always frustrated with it because he was he was playing it like B minor instead of just playing like a D blues. Yeah. You know, which is how Greg was hearing it just yeah. like if you play Leave My Blues at Home in D, you'll be like, "Oh yeah." That one always messed with me. That that song always messed with me for that re- for that reason. That's what it is. It's yeah. the genius of Barry Oakley that he played it like a B minor and that fingering for B minor I would never do. Yeah. But if you're a guitar player and you're playing down there, you would finger it that way. And when he showed it to me, I've played it that way f- ever since. And it just, it was perfect. I was like, that's it. So I always go to Joe Dan for anything because he played bass and he knew exactly what Oakley did. And I could always get that, you know, it was almost like having Oakley, you know. And what was it like being the new guy um, in with a, in a band with such like heavy roots and heavy <laughs> tradition? I mean, first, I guess this question is in two parts: one by the from from the band members, and two from the fans and the community. It was so crazy, and you know, I was just young and dumb too. I was thirty two. Uh, it took me a long time to mature. Um, even more than all of that, I would say just like the craziness of the band's history and their present craziness. Because when Warren and Alan left, it was because it was just like, it's so crazy. Just yeah. I can't take anymore, you know. And so that was the real, like if guys were fighting with each other or whatever, you know, you'd just be on pins and needles sometimes. But then just trying to, I had never been with people that were that iconic, you know? It's a different dynamic, you know, when people have been treated like rock stars since they're teenager, or when people have been rock stars since they're teenagers. Um, And it's different. You do, I would tell all young players, you know, I guess I was arrogant. I was like, man, people are people. You know, we all put our pants on one leg at a time and, you know, that's bullshit. It's like, no, you do have to make allowances for people that have been that famous that young because their reality is not like anybody else's, man. And it is real. Yeah. It may not be a good reality yeah. even, but it's real. And you have to accept that. Like you're, if you don't, you're going to be frustrated and maybe worse, you know, like, it, it could kill you. Like if they were my heroes, it would have been hard to process. Right. It would have been hard to process. I think it was for Alan Woody, you know, I think it is for anybody, you know, and some people do it better than others, you know, and I still have that kind of thing where I, I, I my two biggest heroes I met and they were absolutely angels and that's Elvin Jones and Wayne Shorter. Right. And then I can throw Roy Haynes in there. Yeah. And so, but some of my heroes that I've met, it's it hurts. I know it hurts, you know, and it's not their fault. It's mine for having that. them on I was a pedestal. Just say that there's a couple times where I met 
you know, people that were like those same thing, like the Mount Rushmore's of music for me. And you, it's hard to put someone on that pedestal. It's hard to be on that pedestal, but you, you, you create something in your mind that's like almost unachievable. And then you exactly. run into them like on their way to the bathroom or something <laughs> and they're trying to get on stage. Or they're know. just actually a dick or right, really addicted be. at that yeah. time or whatever, you know, like, yeah. but I was like, and I still kind of have that. Maybe I should just, I want to have my heroes. Maybe I should leave them up on a pedestal. And yeah. I think some people would say, well, you big dummy, don't you want to hang with them and hear their experiences? And I'm like, yeah, so I, I did miss out on that end, but I also met a bonafide extraterrestrial right. <laughs> and spent that time with him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, so. But I think that is interesting <laughs> that you weren't like this huge, massive Allman Brothers fan. I think that actually probably did help your relationship with them and the music was mm. that you were immersed into it um, from a little bit of a different mind state. Like it would have been hard to be around and all of a sudden in that band having yeah. been like a massive fan, I think. Yeah. I mean, think of the guys that would have got the gig that were huge fans. Right. Right. And they're like, oh my God. Yeah. I'm on stage with freaking Greg and Dickie like and then the, yeah. and then this shit starts Greg tells him to do one thing Dickie tells him to do the exact opposite now they're in the same position I'm in but those for that guy these are my two heroes yeah so that's way more of <laughs> mess with your mind a lot more you know than what I had to deal with I was like dude you know unfortunately there's Butch and J-Mo be like yeah yeah you know <laughs> So I do what Greg wants when it's his thing. And when it's time for the solo, if it's a long jam, I do what we go with Dickie and Butch and J-Mo, you know? Right, right. And uh, so, and there was a couple of times that they, uh, Greg wanted to fire me at one point and uh, Butch and J-Mo were like, if he goes, we go. You know? Right. So like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Wow. So. <laughs> um, and that probably was pretty good training uh, for all a lot of the other things that you did, including Dead and Company. Um, I mean, well, you know, Phil, you probably found this out with Phil, where yeah. Phil is like intentionally like, I don't want you to play like Jerry. That's the last thing I want. I want you yeah. to play this music the way it makes you feel. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And I had an interesting um, kind of full circle with that because I was a deadhead before I was even a musician. So I had uh. all the songs kind of like in my body almost, you know, where like I grew up listening to that music. My brother was a deadhead. I saw my first show when I was 12 years old. Grateful Dead show. And wow. I saw Jerry a ton, you know, like in wow. that little time, that window. Um, collected the dead shows. But then when I started playing guitar, I had a similar, you know, kind of come up like you did, where I was super into jazz, super into like Herbie Hancock and that realm of music and funk music. And as yeah. I kind of started becoming more of a songwriter in my later years and like wanting to sing and do like this whole other thing, uh, I got called to play with Phil. And it was, the timing for me couldn't have been more perfect because I needed that music in my life again, you know? Yeah. And then the crazy yeah. thing was I had never learned the songs under my fingers, but I knew every word, you know? So yeah. I started listening to prepare myself. Um, but I, I mean, I wasn't prepared. I mean, there was no way to yeah. really be prepared because There's no there way. was such a yeah. massive amount of songs. And then... 
uh, actually being on stage with him and understanding that, you know, I had been taking solos in a different way for the past 25 years. I'd been taking, yeah. here's your solo, take it up, take it down, pass it yeah. off. Yeah. He, when I st- <laughs> and, and so I just kind of went into it with that mindset and he was like, no, 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 no. That's not <laughs> how we do this. Okay. Like, yes, there are peaks and valleys, but this is a band. This is a band, you know what I mean? And we're going to move yeah. together the improv yeah. happens together. It's not your solo. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Like you put the quotes up. Not your solo. Uh, it's, but it's, it's done so much for me and as a musician in the last, whatever, I guess 2013 was when I, my first gig with him. But just learning that catalog, having that music in my life again, it kind of just opened up something else. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess I'm skipping some years here, but I, I'm curious, like, um, what that was like for you just diving into that world. It's almost like you were in this one pool with the Allman yeah. Brothers and then, like, and then jumped into this other pool that maybe, <laughs> and I don't want to say it's deeper, but it's like there's just so much there. And, and just in the fact that you're you're respecting this massive community and it's way beyond the music you know what i mean this history what was it like going from that pool to (laughs) that one well you know fortunately um because of colonel bruce you know deadheads and freaks and by that i mean witches i'm thinking like our crowd back in little five points when we played yeah it was like deadheads, witches, and all artist freaks, right. and just weirdos. You know, the collection of weirdos mm-hmm. around Colonel Bruce, weirdos and aliens, right? So we deadheads had kind of given us our platform, you know, widespread panic, and fish and blues traveler adopted us, right, and let took us out on the road with them. Like that show you saw, I was, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so I was exposed and I remember like, I remember Deadheads from growing up very early, like all the way back to fourth grade. I remember Deadheads somewhere in the patchwork quilt. I guess their parents were Deadheads of the kids at school, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was exposed to that community and I knew they were super, it were like, I always thought of them as like the super nice white people, yeah. like the not racist white people, the not stick up your ass white people, right. the cool, you know, just like they're the cool <laughs> yeah. white, cool white people, you know? Yeah. And so, and then when we did a lot of those festivals, like the Horde tour, and then a lot of the festivals that came, you know, uh, as a result of doing that. Um, so I was always around that community. I just didn't know the dead catalog at that point. So I've been around the the crowd and the vibe and the scene, which I always dug, right? You were actually a huge help to me then. There's two things that helped me learn the dead catalog. One was the Almond Brothers 40th anniversary. <clears throat> well, you know, so many people came through and we learned so many songs for that. I mean, we used to learn a bunch of songs for people to sit in at the Beacon, but this was the mother of all Beacons. Yeah. 
you know, like my resume, I call that the resume run because it looks like I played with every rock and roll great in yeah. history, you know, but they all came and sat in with us, you know, so I'd learning all those tunes. And then the Almond Brothers ended uh, when Jess was six months pregnant. Mm. And I was like, oh, shit, what do I got to do now, you know? And so I started hustling and then played all those New Orleans, the super jams, and then we play the after parties, you know? And so especially New Orleans Jazz Fest, like having to learn 13 different sets and then, you know, there could be 10, 20 songs for each set, you play that set one time and then it's over and you go to two more gigs that same night. Right. So I would just take tunes like five at a time. Then it was 10 at a time and 25 at a time, you know, and then the dead and company opportunity came up and I was like, like 400 songs, but take them 50 at a time. So I, I picked my favorite 50. Cause I was like, where do you start? You know? So I would just, Put up a show, just randomly YouTube shows. I hear a tune that I really liked a lot, and uh, and I would learn that one. And then, so I got up to about 50, and I remember I texted Mayer, and I was like, you know, before its first rehearsal, if we both know the same tunes, we probably goes a lot faster. So I texted him which 50 I knew, and he texted me like the 50 or however many that he knew. And like whatever we didn't have in common, we kind of, I, I boned up on everything that was on his list that wasn't on mine. I, I was uh, Smart. pleased that I had a lot in common, you know? And um, so when we got there, we got up to 80 pretty fast, Yeah, you know? But if it wasn't for all of those times doing these super jams and New Orleans Jazz Fest yeah. and... I remember... Actually, right after you got that call, or around that time, you and I were doing the Bonnaroo Super Jam, and I yeah. was like the musical director, and we had, remember yeah. Robert Trujillo was on the gig, and uh, oh, Chance the so Rapper, great. and yep. it was like a crazy hodgepodge of stuff, Sput, Sput. on drums, Sput was playing and drums. you and I were driving, because we were staying in Nashville, rehearsing in Nashville, I think, and then we yeah. had to drive out there, and you and I rented a car to drive out there, and you told me about that, and we started listening to, I think we were listening to different dead, you know, my favorite shows or whatever, we were just talking about it, um, and it just, I remember just getting so excited because I didn't really know any, like, from that moment of you telling me that, I was just like, I can't see anyone else doing that gig. Knowing you and know, having, having played with Phil, I mean, you guys are very different, but I, the, yeah. the, your understanding of harmony... You know, which yeah. also rooting from Kofi and, you know, Phil mm -hmm. is like a classically trained guy who just hears chords in this whole different way. You know, Dude, his and ears you're the are, only other uh, guy amazing. that I've played with that could substitute things in this really interesting way. I mean, you're, you're more on the low end, more on the one than him you yeah, know, traditionally. Sure. But uh, and then hearing you. Do it and watching it evolve has just been so much fun for me um, as a fan <laughs> of that music. And also timing yeah. wise, having just that year or two before, like just dove in. So you now know. you know it, like yeah. you're inside it. And, uh, and then you kind of, you know, through you, you know, I, I had toured with Mayer back in 2000. 
six. And then, but we hadn't talked all that much over the years, every once in a while. And since, and I was like, man, I need to reconnect with John. And we like started geeking so hard sending, he sent me like the, the super Eagle guitar. And we started just like, um, so just that has been kind of reigniting my love for that music again. Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. Kofi and I were at Lock-In. And you got, and Dead and Company was playing. And it's funny because Kofi was like a kind of unaware, like what the schedule was. And, and I made him stay with me. I was like, Hey man, I, let's get this. Li- I'll take you back later. Let's, let's go watch the show. And me and him watched you, uh, you guys play. And I kind of like walked with him around the park that day, that evening and kind of like just gave him my perspective of the dead because he didn't really get it. Or I don't know if, I don't want to say he didn't get it, but he was not aware, you know, like like me, but just wasn't. Yeah. And he didn't quite (laughs) understand why I loved it, (laughs) you know, or what my (laughs) connection to it was. And I don't know if it really set in fully, but I remember when we went out there, I think you played a solo on eyes of the world. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Yeah, because me and Branford were mixing it up. And he was like, yeah, man, say it, yeah. You know, he was like, (laughs) I was so happy. He was so into it. And uh, we just had such a great night. And he was really so proud of you, man. It was like, it was really cool. And he was was really getting into it. You know, he fully like was, uh, was absorbed into the into the music he played my last gig with him was on his birthday yeah the last two gigs actually i think one was his birthday and i think one was the day after i gotta go back and look was that that was when we played in uh santa cruz wasn't it yeah you were on that yeah i was on the gig i got pictures from that day that i just saw the so you know that was the first time kofi ever played grateful dead and jerry garcia band and you remember the crowd remember the flute solo he did on high time and the crowd went apeshit and it's like it was so crazy to see the heads respond to him that way and you know Oh God! If he had lived, where he was gonna go with his interpretation of it? Because you know oh, yeah. the way he plays, just plays at that rhythmic, super just, just yummy, funky, Kofi way with the great voicings, and and it just I was like, and so he, he heard, did it, and the way he heard the changes, man. because that's the thing is the Grateful Dead music has some beautiful chord changes, man. You know, and that's something that you know to me was uh really cool having like learning to improvise on those songs is not easy that's the thing no. is people think that that the grateful dead music is easy because of how fluid jerry would play on the music yeah. you know like his 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 way of weaving these chord progressions together made yeah. it sound easier than it is when you actually like get into it. All of them really, because if you look at a tune like Estimated Profit, 
Like you could literally dance to that tune. Yeah. And it's in seven or whatever odd time it's in, you know? Yeah. But I realized like this, this bass line that, that Bob wanted me to play that Phil would never do it. I was like, this is like a reggae bass line. And that's why you can dance to this song, even though it's in seven. That's a testament to the whole band making something complicated seem like it's just right. butter. Yeah. Melted, you know, soft butter, you know? And uh, Mayer said that too. He was like, we were at, you know, when uh, Long Strange Trip came out, we were just like tripping out because we got to see it before everybody else, yeah. you know? And it was just like, we're calling each other just like, can you believe we're a part of this? Like, we're the last chapter of this? Like, what? This is so crazy. And, and I remember him saying to me, actually long before then, he was like, you know, this is like uh, like jazz tunes, like the real book. I was like, exactly, exactly. This stuff is hard to solo over. You have to do your homework. You're not just going to get up and just solo over this shit unless you're like, Somebody could cite, re, you know, maybe Chick Korea could do it, but then could he really feel the folk element part of it? You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, and I also think knowing the melody and the words too. It's like, a, you know, I know that sounds kind of esoteric or whatever, no. but knowing the words, knowing the phrasing of these songs, you kind of have to. I know Bob has probably said this to you when he talks about, you know, when I'm singing this song, I'm not me anymore. I'm becoming the character in this story telling the story. Yeah. And that shit's real, man. Like, there's there's some songs that fans want me to sing that Bob's doing, you know? And yeah. I'm like, and there's some of them that I actually like to do, but there's some of them I can't touch him, man. Yeah. Because he becomes that, that character in that story. Yeah. Man, like standing on the moon. I tried standing on the moon one time with Melvin. Dud. Yeah. I knew it. Melvin knew it. We were like, let's move on. You know, it's, and it, I don't even yeah. get, uh, I don't let my ego get crushed about it. You know, maybe I'll channel more of what Bob's doing then, and then I'll do it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like at that moment, it was just me singing the song. It's like, nah, that's not the yeah. song. The song is, and Bob does it totally different from Jerry. But he he becomes that. He's so invested in it spiritually. You it know, is. it's like casting you as the that character. Like Bob would play that character differently, but like some people just aren't gonna be able to play that character. You know what I mean? And Mayor talked. Mayor was on the show. We talked about how these Grateful Dead songs are at this town. It's like almost like this town, you know, and you yes. know, get to know the feeling of this town and, and, and the characters within yes. it. And that's why it's like, you know, I really respect the guys in the dead and um, the Almond brothers for having this attitude and Jerry too. Cause Jerry said this in interviews. Like, I hope when I'm gone that people are, taking this music and doing it 
their way, but they have to live in that town. Yeah. And you can't, so there was no way I was ever going to get everything I needed about the Almond Brothers except for spending that time with them. You have to live in that town. Right. And then it comes, you know, but there's the other side of that coin, which is like what Phil said. I definitely, I do not want you to do it. Like you can't copy uh, features of this town. You have to become a new fixture in the town. You have to move right. to the town. Right. So, That's interesting. And, that, and the same thing was with the Almond brothers. Tom Dowd said it came down to me and another guy who's, Initials were also OB, and he was also from Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I lived at the time and was there for 18 years. His name was Owen Brown. And Tom Dowd said to uh, Dickie and Greg and Butch and Jamie, he said, look, if you want to faithfully reproduce your past, then, you know, go with these other guys that, that know the music inside and out. He said, but if you want to take it somewhere new that it hasn't been before, then you should get O'Teal. And that was really him like stacking the deck in my yeah. favor. Right. Because he knew they weren't going to go, well, we're going to rest on our laurels. You know, like, yeah. it's like, you know, like my dad, I bet you can't play T-Town. You know, so they were like, well, yeah, we're going to get O'Teal, you know. Although I'll say this, and it's funny, it was Greg was the first one when during the audition part, so people went after me, or at least one guy went after me. There was two other guys. And when I was in there, we got about, I think we got through with the second or third song. And Greg was like, I don't know why we got to even go on any longer. Like, this is a guy as far as I'm concerned. And I was like, sweet. Yeah, yeah. But I knew Dickie, you had to really, I had Butch and J-Mo on my side, but I knew had to get Dickie too, you know. So Tom told him that and, you know, tip the skin, put his finger on the scale for me. Well, it's interesting because, (laughs) you know, you have been part of energizing, you know, two foundations of music. Isn't it crazy? (laughs) I mean, with the Allman Brothers, you and Derek coming in, you know, and Warren and, but you and Derek coming in was like this infusion of energy. Yeah. Just like later on, you and Mayer coming into the dead. That's Um, crazy. And I just remember, like, when Derek got the gig, too, because I had been touring with Derek in 99, 2000, like, right as he was getting the gig. And, you know, me and him were like two kids running around the city. And, And then we'd be like... For going from Tower Records, and like we then we'd like run up into the beacon. We literally like kids, you know, like running into the beacon. And I got to like hang out on stage with the Allman Brothers, and eventually sit in, and it was just like surreal for me. But then you guys were like my homies. It was just such an yeah. incredible. It just even as just being like an outside uh, family member. And then you guys, I don't know if you remember this, but I at one point got a publishing check that I uh, didn't understand wh- where it was from and I had to trace it back. <laughs> and you guys played uh, Rudy's Way. I think it was Rudy's Way. It was a soul live tune you guys quoted in a jam that ended up on your like live Almond Brothers thing. And you guys gave us publishing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, man. Which was surreal. <laughs> surreal. Uh, and that's the Almond Brothers for you. But also during that time, I think it was around 2000, you and I started playing... Like, do you remember the Izzy bar? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, those gigs. Yeah. 
and you and I, I played that. a few gigs there, and there was like a a bunch of cool shit going on in that. That was like right when Soul Live was starting, and uh, my brother's label was happening. And yeah, what was the name of that label? Uh, oh, Valor. Valor. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. After I had my big spiritual awakening, it was just like whoa, like Star Trek or the Outer Limits or something. And yeah, my not- life has not been the same since that. Yeah, Thank God. Thank God. Oh. How old were you when you actually joined ARU? Was the, you said twenty four? Well, he actually named the band after we got our first record deal. So somewhere twenty four, between twenty four and twenty six. Right, you know, right. I've I've recently found this thing. I'll send it to you. It's this guy that has done the deepest dive on Colonel Bruce and the Grease Band that you've ever seen. There's all these live recordings of the Grease Band that I've never heard, including Atlanta Pop Festival. And, wow. And um, yeah, he's so young, man. He's so young. I've seen you pictures from that day, from that pop festival. It's, it's like, just, wow. His voice, man, it's so high. He could get so high. And, yeah. and it's like... It's like fish and sun raw. You know what I mean? Right. It's just like, and and the Colonel with his crazy, it just all, it's one of the greatest rock bands of all time in the universe, for sure, man. It's, that that stuff is, it's still my favorite stuff is Hampton Grease Band, not the stuff that I did. The the early ARU records though were a lot, just super influential in my world, Um, you know, Lettuce actually, when Lettuce was forming, that was in our like top three, four albums that we were listening to over and over and over. And wow. we were rehearsing down the street from where you guys played in Boston. I don't know if you remember this. That's actually when I met you for the first time. Um, and the funny thing is, I was listening to your podcast with Alan and Neil, and you met them around the same time before I knew them, actually. I may, wow. I met them around that time too, but you met them, you know, when they opened, I think Moon Boot Lover opened for ARU, mm-hmm. is that correct? And oh, Le- yeah. And Lettuce was rehearsing, and I remember we walked by the club, and this uh, was after, uh, you got, it was, Colonel Bruce was not with you guys, Kofi was in the band. You guys had yep. that uh, uh, shuttle bus. And the mobile quaalude. <laughs> yeah, the mobile quaalude. And Kofi comes walking out, and we're all we all have our instruments on our back, and we're kind of like peeking in to see if you guys are there because we were like trying to get in the show, but I think maybe it was twenty one and we couldn't get in. And Kofi was like, "Hey, man, you guys play?" And we're like, "Holy shit!" And uh, he brings us in there, and we met you guys. Got Kofi to, brought you. <laughs> yeah, he brought us in there, That's and great. we we got to hang out for sound check and. Dite, the story goes, it's a little fuzzy, but sto- the Dite starts telling Jimmy Herring, like, he's like, you got to hear Kraz play. He learned your solo. And I had learned the solo from one of the, I can't, shit now, I can't remember the song. That was you? Yeah. Oh, wow. I had learned his solo and he, I he let me that. play it with you guys. He gave me this, I let, I got, and it was like the craziest moment that I'd had ever wow. to that point. <laughs> crazy i didn't even put that together yeah it was at uh local 186 was the name of that club which became it's no longer i mean it changed names you know and then i don't know if that venue's still there but and then i I, remember the talk backstage were like hey there's this dude here that learned jimmy solo yeah and i was like oh cool wow and to me i was like 
someone's learning our music? Like, yeah. And, you know, we were you know? probably 18, I guess, at that point. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I'd learned, I mean, I was like, we were all learning y'all's stuff. We and, couldn't conceive of that, like someone like shedding, like transcribing our stuff. I was like, wow, does anybody even know we exist? You right, know? right. Except for these right. couple bands. That's so great. I love it. Yeah, that was that. And, you know, that's I've, I used to, I definitely told Kofi that one, but I don't know if I'd ever told you that. Uh, oh, but no, that was an incredible moment and how gracious you guys were. And like Jimmy to this day, you know, just like anything I want to ask him, it's like he's just an open book and he's been a huge, huge inspiration for me. He's the best, man. The yeah. best cats really are humble, man. Yeah. Bruce always told me, he said, you're not good enough to be humble. You need to get an ego. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I think I took his advice, unfortunately. Right. Jeez. Right. I still, no, mine's yeah. still way down compared to these clowns I know. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know. That's <laughs> for sure. Um, so what have you been doing during quarantine? I know you, you've got the podcast. Um that was it, really, yeah. mostly. Like, I was so glad. You know me, man. I've been talking about how much I hate the road for 15 years. Yeah. So I don't miss the road still, but yeah. I do dearly miss playing for people. And I miss the family. I miss the tribe, the right. Grateful Dead and Jam Band tribe dearly. I do miss it. And would happily go on the road to f to be with them again. Right. But for the for months... I just was happy to be home and kind of, you know, bewildered and trying to figure out what was going on. Cause we're dealing with George Floyd. We're dealing with Trump. We're dealing with the pandemic which you know, we caught it. Me and my wife and both kids caught it. And I'm really glad now because it wasn't rough. And so we've all got antibodies now. But it was a lot to process, and really, the podcast kind of saved me yeah. in my friendship with Mike Fenoya, yeah, and all the goodness that has come out of that. And then I think also in general, like you say, like your gratitude level, especially this far into the pandemic, of every little thing, every friend, certain venues I know now, like certain towns. Like I know, like if I'm if I had six months to live, I know every place I want to go play. I know every person I want to see. You know what I mean? It's like sure. it's just clarified, crystal clear, and and that's a gift. But since we bought the new house and we moved in here September first, thank you, God's old and new, that we were able to get away with that. Um, my love for music has reignited. And I feel like I'm 17 again, partially like these late nights I have with Tom Guarna. Uh, a lot, the teaching, teaching is really, I love teaching, man. I love when students see something on their bass. And a lot of my students are professional musicians. Right. So they've been playing for a very long time. And then when they see something that they've never seen on their own bass before, and I'm like, that gives me a feeling that's... It's parental. Like, I'm used to that with Nigel. Yeah. And I feel like it's this stage in my life, this kind of like, um, I love the teaching, man. Yeah. 
And I'm even launching a teaching website, which has videos of me explaining everything and these really cool diagrams that show everything on the neck. So ah, you can cool. see the symmetrical shapes and see the way I see things, you know, and a lot of bass players have, are wanting, you know, they, things can be so theoretical that it's hard for you to understand their application. And the way I do teach is by the sound of the interval, you know, relative pitch yep. and the shape on the neck and since we're tuned in force you know we don't have to have different fingerings for all the different keys right and the number the interval you know major third minor third major six minor six so if you join those three things together and a lot of people dig that because they're like oh wow i can see what to do with this in a way that i couldn't see before right right because it's just kind of theoretical on the chalk chalkboard but how do i use it like you could const- you could transcribe stuff all day long and not really see I've transcribed lots of stuff. There's some right. of Kofi's licks even that I wish he was alive. I'm like, I still don't see it. Maybe one day now that I'm into the piano more. So that has been a big part, the teaching and the podcast. And then now that, you know, Tom Guana showed me, uh, we got on this conversation. You, I'm sure you know from Colonel Bruce about the number six. Yeah. Like, I almost liked, I used to say he was obsessed with the number six, but now I think the number six was obsessed with him or attached <laughs> to him in some way, you know? Right, right. And so I have always favored this interval since I started really getting deep into harmony. And maybe it's because of all the old jazz records that I heard from my mom and dad since the womb. But it's why I gravitated toward majors, minors, all of it. If you learn my songs, like especially off Family Secret, too many times, all those tunes, you'll see this. And Tom Guarner would tell me, he's like, you love those six, man. He's like, I show you this thing about six. It's one of the... So I was like, yeah. So we started, he started showing it to me, show me this other note in the scale, this eighth note, the eight note bebop scale with the minor six or diminished six. And so it just opened up this world. Because, you know, we're in a 12-tone system. So obviously, the six. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, my God, like, it's from Colonel Bruce to now. Like, now I feel like I'm 17 again, or like the first time that I got my six string and I went over to Reggie Wooten's house and he showed me chord melody. And I found all these things. And I actually was playing it. Tom said, I've heard you play it. Kofi said, I heard you play it. I, without knowing about that eighth note, then I didn't know. And now I'm like, oh, man. I even found one day I was uh, one night, like three in the morning, I'm messing around with the scale in different positions. And I found the symmetrical finger of me. I was like, I did find the scale many years ago, but I wasn't sure of it because I didn't know about the eighth note. Right. So I played it, but I wasn't, you know, I played because I heard it, not because I knew, knew it. And now it's opened up. I'm finding, I'm seeing all these shapes and stuff and geometry on my base that I that was right under my nose. Wow. Like what I do for my students, Tom did for me. And now it's got me onto the piano because you could right. do close voicings on the piano. And it's like, I sent it to Mayer. I was like, dude, this is a major scale. What? Yeah. And you just play it and you sound like the hippest mofo from... Back in the day, right. and you're just playing a major scale, 
And it's like, wow. And it's all about the six. The six. It's funny because that's, it's the, what, what resonated from the story I was just telling about the, the Jimmy solo is that he starts out that solo with like this sustained, like six. It's like the, it's like the six kind of eventually bending to the seven. And I was so drawn in by that, actually. That's funny. The six. But I hear that and you're playing a lot too. It's a, and that's why Tom was saying I've heard you play it, but now that I know it, and I know, and it changed the chord melody completely. So every other note that you play, you play the one, and then the next note up, dot, and this yeah. five chord. Yeah. Next chord is one. Next chord is five. Next chord is one. Five. Da, da, da. Sounds so hip, dude. Yeah. And that's how these jazz players, they, you eliminate the two. You're just playing the five back to the one. Right. And then there's these things that Barry Harris calls the four brothers. Off that diminished, if you lower any of the four notes one half step, you have a related dominant. So then they play that as the five instead of the five. So now you've eliminated the two and you're subbing out the five and you sound hip as shit. Right, right. And the math is very simple. I was like, it's right there. Why didn't I see it? It just, that's why you got to have teachers and mentors and good friends like know, tom is kind of like my kofi now right he stays right. up late night and my reggie wooten now he stays up with me till four in the mor- morning he went to juilliard and he knows he's down the rap so now my yeah. my pandemic has turned into this like uh a series of great gifts i feel really bad all the people that are suffering yeah so much now you know, I feel like we're so we're lucky, you know, to be creatives and musicians during this time because it's at least for me, it's allowed me to finally shed these things, these concepts and these ideas. And specifically for me, it's been like singing and playing and like really because I never learned that. I just was like, oh, I'm writing these songs and I'm sick of other singers, <laughs> you know, and now it's like, OK, learning that like an instrument um, and like just so many things we all have these lists um yeah. that we're like getting to you know and, my, and in certain I mean, cases how many things would you not have gotten to if you were on the road all the time definitely not that's what i look at definitely i'm like not. yeah so i feel blessed and i also feel like you said like a little bit guilty that i that i'm enjoying this as much as i am while the, you know so many horrible th- things are happening in the world but but we're doing the right thing with it because right. here's the the bottom line is we are a lot of like bass was my therapy when I was so depressed, right? Back when I couldn't dance anymore. We are that therapy for a lot of people. So us going deeper into our playing and all that is going to be a gift to other that's how I have to look at it. Because otherwise, I just feel like the world is so wrong. Like, why do I have it so good while other people are having it so bad? I mean, they were having it bad before the pandemic. Yeah. You know? And now you're watching this place turn into like a third world country. Yeah. It's very disturbing. And it's very hard for me to process like how I have it so good, you know, so far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, it's like, well... Go deeper, man. Go deeper spiritually. Go deeper musically. Go deep, deep, deep. And what you give out of this will help people 
get through all this and other things like if you know if i end up being able to make some good money help out by passing that on pay that for it too you yeah, know yeah yeah it was like over forty thousand homeless children in florida like it's crazy I just am like you know as, a, as someone who's adopted a kid it's just like i'm like how's that possible for one state like that many children right are homeless you know so i gotta do something about that beyond just adopting one child, you know? So right. I, I'm, that's something that I'm thinking about a lot now. Like, hey, man, there, there are some heroes of mine that nobody knows who they are. Right. We had this lady on our uh, podcast, Liz Dozier, and she's just like, uh, she's amazing. <laughs> she's just amazing. And she's just one of these people that does so much that you realize, wow, I got to do more. Right. And uh, so I'm going to do that too. And uh, it's just, you know, you got to take what you've been given and like to whom much is given, you know. So I'm, I'm looking at it like that, you know. That's a beautiful thing, man. Um, being an artist and just how you, who you are as a person, how, how do you feel that change or how can you sum up how that changes oh, once you become a dad? I mean, for me, you know, I was such a bonehead until... I was 40 yeah, and I had a massive mystical spiritual experience, which helped me, but I was still struggling after that with, you know, I had like a grace period of a couple of years and then the old temptations came back and the double life and all the blah, 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 you know, but I, I was given something that, that it can't, I mean, you have to work really hard to make that go away uh, after it happens to you. And eventually it took, and fortunately I met Jess right at that time when I just was like, no, I got to go deeper with this thing. I have to give her a lot of credit for being this kind of miracle in my life where I was able to experience the happiness that I didn't think I deserved to feel before. It's that old addict thinking, you know? And so I walked into it. And it was like, all right, you know, it's obviously if if she's been this gift to you, then the universe or God or whatever you want to call it thinks that you deserve it. So go ahead and enjoy it and, and be true to it and try to foster it and, you know, do it right. You know what I mean? But when Nigel was born, no lie, man, <laughs> when his head crowned, all of my priorities went... Like that. This is bullshit. We can deal with that later. This is pressing. This is pressing. That I'm not even going to think about anymore. Just like boom, 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 boom. Just. And that was a weird thing. It was kind of like watching this fully formed mom materialize out of Jess, someone who I'd known for quite some time at that point. And I was just like, all of a sudden, a a perfect, fully formed mother just appeared out of nowhere. And I was like, okay, that's trippy, you know? So it really, I've I've had this discussion with other people where, you know, a lot of people that are going through mental health challenges right now, and me and Jess do just like anybody else, especially musicians. A lot of it is, you see people that when they can't be on the road anymore, their identity is messed with. Right. Because they're like, that's who I am. I'm a musician a touring, you know, and that's a dangerous thing for what you do to become who you are. Yeah. 
Some people can do that. But the second Nigel's head, <laughs> my identity was not in that anymore. My identity is I'm Nigel's dad. I'm Jess's husband and I'm Nigel's dad. Yep. And I'm Kavi's dad now. Right. And all the rest of it is all the rest of it. Everything serves that. So I never had, uh, you know, I was never going to have this crisis yeah. that some people, some musicians might have from not being able to tour because that's not where my identity lies. Right, you know? right. And um, so it's been, uh, that's been the biggest gift. And, you know, we text each other like it's every day. Yeah, yeah. Every day. This little dude, he counted to... Uh, he counted to, well, 50 now in Mandarin at the dinner table. He's wow. five years old. Crazy. The first time he counted to 10, he goes, she, she, what that say? And I saw him doing his fingers. He goes, she, all done. And I was like, what? And my wife goes, Mandarin. He's like taking Mandarin right. at school. Crazy. <laughs> you pretty much summed up exactly, you know, what's been going on with me is I've always been someone that takes on too many things because of the excitement you know what i mean i get someone says hey man uh, you should do this oh man yeah oh oh i'm gonna produce this record oh i'm gonna play on this i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that and i and then all of a sudden when it's all piled up on my plate i'm like what did i do you know <laughs> and now i mean like you said the moment and it's funny that you said the moment he crowned because that was the moment when lewis came out i felt this let this insane feeling that's complete. I mean, it was like a million hits of XC. I mean, it was no drug yeah. could achieve it. And, yeah, but also close. it was just like, now I just know that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And since that moment, like there's this guide to what I'm supposed yeah. to do. That was, that was yeah. always so confusing for me. It was always like, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? And now it seems it's like laughable how clear it is. It's like, oh, of yeah. course I need to do this. Like, why would I even think about doing that yeah. instead of this? You know, and what's important becomes super crystal clear, like you said. And to me, that is magic. Right. That's love. That's the magic power yeah. of love. It's the strongest, most magical force in all the universes, man. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. How does that happen? There's certainly no scientific expert. We can't quantify it in that way. Right. Right. But we still are like, but it's real. I could see something I couldn't see before. Clearly. Right. Not, you know, there's no, no more doubt. That's magic. Yeah. And so I, you know, I'm grateful for that. And I felt like such a hypocrite because, you know, I, I'm a person that had a vasectomy. Yeah. Like I was into that. I wouldn't be, a, I'm not a good person. So I couldn't be a good husband. I couldn't be a good dad. And why would I curse a child by bringing it to this shithole anyway? Right. You know what I mean? Like, and then you know, like all of that completely, completely changes. That's magic, man. Yeah. That's friggin' magic, you know? And yes. I felt bad because I, after, right after I had Nigel, I started in on all you guys. You know I it. Know. Well, I, you know, for me, I, and also seeing you and how happy you were and like, you know, I always wanted it. I did think, okay, is it too late? But the thing for me, and just like you and Jess, was like I needed to find the right person, the right That's situation. And weirdly enough, the timing couldn't have been better for me. You know what I mean? Because now yeah. I kind of have 
the option to just be home if I want be, to. You know, if this had happened in the twenties, I and when I in my twenties, I probably would have fucked it up. I mean, who knows? Um, I know I would have, man. So I I, I'm I thankful that it happened when it when it when it did, and I, and I'm thankful for you, man. I'm thankful for you helping me along the way and and being <laughs> a, a guiding light on a lot of levels. You know, same here, man. Because we are we are all that for each other. Like, you know, it's funny. I think of you more as a friend than like someone that was like a mentor or a hero or whatever. I know they're all, it's all mushed together now. You know, that was back then when we, it's many moons ago. But uh, I I feel like we are all um, even really young people that I may have as students or that are in my life. We're all that light and lifeline for each other, like spiritually and, uh, and that's what it's all about, man. Because it's a tough, ro- it's a tough ride here. It's not an easy ride. Yeah. Here, whether just because of our own free will, or because of a bunch of other people's free will before we ever got here. Like I just woke up here, black in 1964, male in Washington D.C. Like what the f is going on? Craze balls, you know. But now I see. I feel like I could see clearly now. So I just, that's like that. Like you said, the the family is your guidepost. I love you. <laughs> I could have gone all day and we may have to do volume two. Actually, volume two can be on comes a time. But, uh, but this was amazing. This was uh, so fun for me. I love you, brother. I love you too, man. All right. We'll talk <laughs> soon, man. <laughs> I want to thank O'Teal for being on the show. So cool to connect with him and talk with him and ask him all these questions I've wanted to ask for years. But before we go, I'm going to play a track from a live recording that happened at the Brooklyn Bowl. And this was Bowl Live, and it's Soul Live featuring O'Teal and Kofi Burbridge. The track is called Butter Biscuit. Thank you. 
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 11.11 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kras plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.